Welcome to Premium Cashflow Real Estate Investing Podcast with Sakar Kauli. During this program, you will hear guest experts sharing their experiences, best practices, and market insights. We discuss investing in multifamily apartment complexes and how a busy professional can passively invest hassle-free in various opportunities. Your host, Sakar Kauli, owns millions of dollars of assets and has done thousands of value-add projects over 20 years now. So listen in for insights. Here's your host, Sakar Kauli. Welcome to another edition of Premium Cashflow Podcast. Uh, today, I have the pleasure of welcoming Jonathan Twombly with Two Bridges Asset Management Company. Welcome to the show, Jonathan. Thank you. Thanks very much for having me. Sure. Jonathan is a very well-known uh, personality within the multifamily industry, so it is a, a mutual pleasure to uh, welcome you. Uh, Jonathan has been doing multifamily syndications for quite some time now. Uh, he has studied law. He is a former uh, board member with Harvard Real Estate Organization and a past president with EO the Brooklyn chapter. And uh, he has his own uh, coaching program as well called Multifamily Launchpad with several successful students via uh, through it. And more importantly, Jonathan has very realistic, practical views that I have always enjoyed. Uh, so we are looking forward to get into that conversation today. So welcome to the show, Jonathan. Uh, kindly give us a background as to you know how you got started, what motivated uh, you to come into real estate, and uh, you know just give us an uh, overview of that. Sure. I so I started out as a lawyer. Uh, I was practicing commercial litigation on you know, sort of big New York law firms and uh, a bit in Boston and London as well. And towards the end of my career, I was focused on hotel related litigation. So I was representing a lot of hotel owners in uh, disputes with the hotel chains mm -hmm. that, that flagged the hotels. Um, I had been interested in real estate for quite some time and I was increasingly unhappy with being a lawyer. Uh, I just, you know, it was a real grind, especially working in New York and um, just found that I wasn't so interested in it over time. I was looking to get into something where I had more control over my life and mm -hmm. uh, more control over the business too, and being able to choose what I, how I spent my time. Um, I was, uh, so when the, when the great financial crisis hit, we were actually expecting a big flood litigation because that's what had happened during the dot-com collapse. And instead sure. things were so bad that there wasn't very much litigation. So I was kind of sitting around for a while with nothing mm -hmm. to do at my firm while we were waiting for this big flood of litigation to come in, which never hit. Sure, sure. And mm -hmm. finally, after a couple of years, the firm decided that, you know, they just didn't want to pay me to sit around anymore. So I, mm -hmm. I lost, uh, lost my job, but I was really done with law. I didn't have the stomach to go try to get another law job. I was fortunate enough to have some money saved up and uh, decided that I was going to go and, figure out something else to do with my life. And since I had an interest in real estate, I started talking to a lot of people in real estate. Uh, to make a long story very short, I connected with somebody who was trying to start up an investment business. And uh, as it turned out, a syndication business, I had no idea what syndications were. I, when we first started, I mean, I was so naive. I thought that we were gonna be investing in you know 
like brownstones in Brooklyn because that's just what my frame of reference was. Sure, sure, and she mm. said, oh, no, no, we're going to go buy 100-unit properties in you know, Louisiana and Texas. And I was like, what? what? <laughs> I mean, it's totally like my mind was, was really blown um, that like we could do this. This is something you could do. Like, so, but once I kind of figured out the, how the whole process worked, mm. um, I learned the business from working with her. Uh, it ultimately didn't work out between us. We had some differences, differences of opinion yeah. over, you know, just how, how things were supposed to go. Uh, so we, you know, we decided that we would part and um, one of the people who had said that he was going to invest with me said, hey, why don't, uh, why don't we join up together? I'll just be a passive investor in your business. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And that was how I was able to start um, this company, Two Bridges Asset Management. It mm -hmm. took us a while to get any traction because I'm sure, as you know, when you first break into the business, especially if you're looking for, you know, 100 unit deals and you're operating, you know, dealing with like the real commercial brokers. Sure. Uh, it's very, very difficult to get them to take you seriously, even if you have financial backing, right? Uh, just because you're not a, a known quantity. Obviously, it helps to be able to come up with, you know, say proof of funds if you're asked. Um, right, right. But it, even then, it, you get a lot of, uh, I think there's a kind of like a testing period where <laughs> they're going to just send you junk Sure. to see if you bite because they're hoping that maybe, you know, you don't know what you're doing. Sure. So therefore you might bite at one of these deals that nobody else wanted. Right. right and right. you have to kind of make your way through that process. So that took a while, it took about a year to kind of like make my way through that until uh, finally we're able to get a deal under contract in late 2013. And uh, that deal was a, uh, 100 unit property in uh, outside of Spartanburg, South Carolina. I see. And um, it was a C property. Uh, we were very fortunate because uh, I had a meeting with a broker. I was able to get into a meeting with a broker. Made you know th came through a personal introduction. Um, the broker showed us a deal that had literally just come in the door like the day before they hadn't even had a chance to really mm. put together any kind of package for it. Mm -hmm. So it was effectively an off market deal. Sure. I went right out, looked at it, said, okay, you know, this looks decent. I want to make a bid. Uh, we came in with the bid and the brokers convinced the seller to take it and mm. we were off to the races. So um, that was, that was not the first deal I ever had under contract with my previous partner. We'd had a couple under contract. We, we weren't able to close it. We had the money, uh, money was raised, it was in the bank, but mm -hmm. we weren't able to close the deals because we ran into issues with lenders, uh, we ran into issues in due diligence. It was just, you know, a host uh, of factors there. A host mm -hmm. of factors. It was a real learning yeah. experience. Mm -hmm. It was very painful and, and out of, I know, suffered out of pocket additionally, sure. but it was a very good education in, in how these things work. So, you know, finally with this now third deal that we had, that I had under contract, uh, that I was able to close, um, you know, that kind of opened, I don't want to say the floodgates, but, you know, that established me in that market. And then after that, I started seeing a lot of deal flow and the mm -hmm. brokers starting to come and, you know, pay attention to who I was and that sort of thing. So uh, that's kind of how I got started in the business. Awesome. Awesome. Thank you. Thank you for that extensive background and the detail there, Jonathan, where you said that 
you know, once you started, you had some, uh, you know, false starts, uh, you know, uh, stop and go. And then obviously you changed uh, and you went with another partner and uh, eventually I think third or fourth deal uh, that kind of finally came to fruition. And, and that's, that's the real practical stuff that I like hearing. Uh, sometimes, you know, you hear from a lot of uh, gurus uh, type people that, oh, boom, it just happened. You know, it, it really is a lot of work and things like that, right? Um, so explain us, Jonathan, that uh, you closed this deal uh, in uh, Spartanburg, South Carolina, mm -hmm. right? Uh, how did you sort of, uh, you know, went into that market, you living in New York, right? Uh, explain us like some of the thought uh, process or the thesis beyond like why that market or why not something else you know yeah so when i actually even before uh my first partner and i um broke up mm -hmm. we had already made a decision that we wanted to start exploring other markets like we wanted to have sort of maybe three different hubs that we were mm -hmm. focused on and i'm I just i i like demographics i like looking mm -hmm. at that kind of data mm -hmm. and the timing was really good because the 2010 census data had just been released in 2012. Mm -hmm. So I started mm -hmm. really digging into that data and what I was really looking for were, were markets that were growing faster than the overall national average mm -hmm. uh, that were also relatively close to New York City. Mm -hmm. and if you just applied those two characteristics as just a mm -hmm. way to winnow down which markets to focus on, mm -hmm. uh, the Southeast just jumped off the map. Now sure. I had, mm -hmm. I had some, I kind of like further winnowed it down because I, I had some, at this point, some uh, perspective on some markets, which uh, like I knew to be very boomy and busty and I wanted to avoid those markets. So markets like, uh, like Florida in a lot of cases. Sure. Mm -hmm. I mean, I know not all of Florida. I know like the panhandle apparently is different from uh, sure. southern, mm -hmm. southern Florida, but. Or like the touristy or, you know, let's say yeah. Las Vegas or Orlando's of the world, that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. There are some markets that are just very, you know. Ups and downs. Just, yeah. They tend to be very, uh, you know, uh, what's the word? Um, cyclic or boom and bust. Yeah, they're very cyclical and they have sure. they're very mm -hmm. boomy and busty. Right. Um, mm -hmm. And so the, the the volatility is is very great in those markets. They, you know, they overbuild, historically they'd overbuild and then they would crash. And so I also wanted to avoid those markets. So when right. I was looking at, you know, looking around, what I, what I noticed was that, you know, there was not much less volatility in the Carolinas and especially in South Carolina at that time. Mm -hmm. uh, and you know, Charlotte got hit in the great financial crisis, but really that was because of its exposure to banking. And it was, you know, it hadn't really had such a huge run up during the crisis and it didn't have like a huge collapse after the crisis. So I, I felt comfortable with those markets and also just because their demographics were so good. Um, I see. I see. So that was really how I came. And then I just, then it really became a matter of like, I was looking all over those markets, but finding, like the first one that I found that I could do happened to be in Spartanburg. So that's, it wasn't because of anything special about that market other than the demographic story 
that I liked uh, in that. I see, I see. And you also said, uh, Jonathan, there that you had, uh, you know, as soon as the deal came on the market, uh, you were fortunate enough to get sort of the first look of sorts, right? Yeah. Um, Was that like, um, you know, you were working with that broker before or you have had uh, sort of those broker relationships cultivated over a period? Well, so that broker relationship came about because of personal introductions and the Mm -hmm. timing, you know, the timing of that particular deal was just very fortunate because we we had planned this meeting. I you know I flew down from New York f- for the meeting and really was intending it just as a like first step get to know you sure. meeting. Mm-hmm. But because of the way that I'd come into the meeting, where I came in through you know a personal connection, mm-hmm. um, I had you know I had established myself kind of in the business even though we hadn't closed any deals yet. Mm-hmm. But I, you know, I had sort of all of the indicia of being in business um, sure. mm-hmm. when they checked me out that they, you know, they took me seriously from the get go. Uh, but sure. as I said, like the meeting was in- originally intended just to be the first step in developing the relationship. Mm-hmm. And, it, and they said, well, hey, look, we just happened to have this deal that fits exactly what you told us that you were looking for. Or, right, right. The, the, so the deal accelerated the whole thing, basically. Hmm. Yeah, yeah. So that was just that was just uh, lucky timing. But sure. but you know they showed us that deal because we had done the groundwork of establishing, you know, beginning the process of establishing the relationship. I see. And you said it was a C-class deal, Jonathan. Um, you know, explain us like um, I know C-class for a lot of listeners means a lot of things sometimes, you know, uh, because of, you know, all the different markets that we have. Uh, explain us, you know, like the age, the vintage, uh, you know, what sort of issues perhaps you may have had uh, because, you know, C-class tends to be, uh, you know, sort of a unique uh, uh, place wherein I think you have to have a, a bit of a skin to, you know, like uh, tackle the issues and make sure, uh, uh, you know, there are like, you know, good performance and things like that. Uh, give us some tidbit about, you know, why C-Class or how did you sort of muddle yourself through the deal? Well, I started out investing in C-Class deals because I thought they were uh, a little more accessible and within reach of what I was doing starting mm-hmm. out. They also traded at higher cap rates, and I thought at the time that that just would translate into you know higher returns. Mm-hmm. Um, so mm-hmm. I, I was a bit naive about things mm-hmm. when I when I got into the business. Um, mm-hmm. I really wasn't anticipating the uh, you know all of the sort of capital issues that come with a C class property, sure. the tenant issues that come with a C class property. Um, and you know we'd actually bought it from a rehabber, so a lot of the work was done on the on the property. So I didn't really anticipate that there was kind of like the underlying stuff would become problems. So sure. uh, mm-hmm. in terms of the vintage of the property, it was a 1970s mm-hmm. construction. Uh, there were some very nice things about the property. It had very spacious apartments. Uh, you know, very uh, very high uh, you know high ceilings. Like they were they were they were it was nice in that sense. Right. And the location was, was really good. It was literally at the, at the intersection of two interstates and there were a ton of jobs in the area, you know, within like that. Was great. Of that. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. It, 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 it looked like a really good deal from that perspective. Mm-hmm. Uh, even I, had two hotels next door to it, which are always, wow. you know, mm-hmm. those are good in, in, indicators of like a location. But the, 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 what I didn't anticipate was, 
the kind of capital issues that would arise on the property in terms of like water mains breaking and things like that, that, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Uh, you know, a rehabber isn't going to get into changing those kinds of things. They're going to do much more kind of surface level uh, changes to the property. And, and then there were the tenant issues. And th this is not, you know, this was a, this was like a solid market rate C property. It was, didn't have crime issues. It wasn't like a, it was just, it was just a, you know, workforce housing as you call sure, it. Sure, uh, sure, sure. But the, we, we had tenant collection issues and uh, you know, so there were lots of uh, problems that emerged with that property over time. Sure, sure. For, uh, and I always like that perspective, uh, Jonathan, where, you know, we are discussing about, uh, you know, buying a, a large multifamily, perhaps, you know, as you said, the C-class, and I myself is, uh, I'm the owner of all the tons of C-class, lots of Section 8, uh, and, you know, we have our own property management and construction company here in Baltimore, and we, we thoroughly understand some of the issues that come up, but, um, you know, for our uh, listeners, if you can maybe, you know, give some of the uh, description around, you know, some of these issues that happen, like, you know, uh, it's always a challenge that you take over a multifamily and uh, especially in a C-class, you're absolutely sometimes pulling your hairs as to, oh, what's happening? There are, you know, collection issues, there are property level issues and things like that. Give us sort of that, uh, uh, you know, foray into the first couple of months of pandemonium that perhaps may have happened. Uh, and again, I don't know the full story, but I'd love to hear because I, I can almost uh, kind of see that where you're going with this is that when you say capital issues, it, it, it almost seems that, oh yes, you have had a bunch of issues and that caused a strain on capital reserves or perhaps CapEx issues as well. Give us some uh, idea about that. Oh yeah, I mean, this, this property was, you know, because it was the first one, did a lot of things wrong. So one of the wrong <laughs> things was not having sufficient reserves on the property. Because sure. I, was very, I was thinking more about the investor returns than anything else. And so mm -hmm. I didn't want to raise any more money than I had to because I was so worried about sure. generating the return, return sure. right? right? So right. Uh, that, so that was mistake number one. That would have solved a lot of issues if we had had more reserves on the property. Sure. Um, mm -hmm. uh, but the, the issue that we ran into after... God, there were so many. I mean, this was this was kind of this was like a like a baptism by fire kind of property because <laughs> really like everything that could have gone wrong went wrong. You know, oh, some boy. of the things some of the things that were within our control, some things that were not within our control, mm -hmm. some things that were manage manager caused that should have been avoided. That you know, just bad management at first on the property. Mm -hmm. uh, but we had, um, you know, I made the mistake of hiring a property management company that didn't have a big footprint in the area. I had, I had developed a relationship with this company when I was looking at deals in Louisiana and Texas, <laughs> and uh, they had a small presence in South Carolina. And they, but not in Spartanburg in general as such. Like they, uh, they were yeah, just... they, had some, they had some properties in Columbia, and they had some in Charlotte. And so they were kind of like nearby, but they weren't really very local. Sure. And that... You know, but I, I was, I thought, well, this is a big company. They can, uh, they can handle these issues. Mm -hmm. um, and they were, they were also kind of, uh, you know, they were telling me all the right 
things like i mean not not the right things like they were sort of i guess flattering me as a new yeah i owner. think sometimes uh, i like to say that people can have good in good intentions right i mean there's nothing wrong in it but when it comes to property management and like the sort of the practical things you gotta have systems and more importantly the people and resources on the ground yeah. ready to go and because something happens you have to be within a very reasonable short time you have to be able to you know do things and more importantly, I think when you're talking C-class or if you're doing any upgrades, you have to have that sort of human presence, so to speak, that to, you know, monitor, you know, keep a check on tenants and things like that. There's just a lots of things that go around that, I guess. Yeah. And, and the problem that happened then was that because they didn't have a good presence on the ground, they weren't able to hire the right people to manage the property. Sure. So mm -hmm. they wound up installing a manager who had no experience with marketing good rate property. She'd come from a subsidized property background. Mm -hmm. So she mm -hmm. didn't have any idea how to market the property. She wasn't used to having to market because mm -hmm. subsidized housing, it's in such a shortage that sure. they just have a waiting list of people who want to be in the property. So, sure. mm -hmm. uh, so that manager wasn't marketing the property and we started having, you know, an occupancy problem oh, where, mm -hmm. where, you know, we were evicting people. First, it was like a double problem. We weren't collecting rent. And then people were defaulting on their rent and then we were evicting them, but then we weren't filling it up with new people because she wasn't marketing the property. Mm -hmm. And, mm -hmm. you know, uh, so that became, you know, we quickly in a market where the occupancy was like 95% across the market, we were down at 88%. Wow. And, mm -hmm. uh, and starting to get in trouble with the lender and, you know, I'm on the phone like with them all the time, like what the hell is going on? And they're like, oh, everything's fine. We got it under control. Uh, it took a very, very long time before the management company finally identified what the issue was. So even after getting rid of this property manager, which we, we did, mm -hmm. uh, that identifying the issue with, with the bad debt was that they had inadvertently, the vendor who, set the you know the software for uh, evaluating applicants to mm -hmm. the property set the income criteria for subsidized housing rather than market rate housing so that they set the income criteria two times basically in rent was 50 percent of income right, right. rather than one third or less sure. which is what you should have so people were coming in marked qualified who couldn't afford the rent right, and right. so we quickly ran into a very bad delinquency problem and eviction problem and then we weren't filling it up and the, the manager wasn't even getting out you know we had like i said a ton of jobs within mm -hmm. a mile of this property and that the manager wasn't even getting out there and like going to those employers and doing the marketing that you're supposed to be doing sure sure so, just for our viewers uh, uh jonathan i just want to quickly uh correct what you said there uh, or rather clarify is that uh, basically, the mistake happened was because the criteria for tenant evaluation or approval was set to uh, voucher-based tenants, which in turn means that uh, for those of you who don't know, a voucher-based tenant is a person who's 
uh, rent is paid by the housing agency part of the rent so let's say for example if your rent is 700 uh, in a hypothetical scenario 500 of that rent portion would come from the housing agency and 200 would uh, basically be paid by the tenant. So where in, in Jonathan's scenario, uh, what he's describing is that if you get a market property, now you're advertising to a market and you're saying that, hey, I'm going to accept the 700 rent, but you are really qualifying other people based on that 200 portion. And that's apparently that's what I'm reading the mistake happened. So in general, you're qualifying people who should not be even at the property. And then, you know, of course they come in the property, pay rent for like a month or two and start defaulting from like three, four, five. And you suddenly have a, not only a collection problem, you're running into bad debt, courts, eviction. Yeah. I mean, these things really can and, drain, drain the cash flow. And it can snowball very quickly out of control Absolutely. if you're Absolutely. not, so go ahead. If you're not <laughs> careful. Yeah. Sure. So that's, so basically it took a long time to identify that issue. Uh, and, uh, you know, after it was corrected, we were in a very deep hole. It just took us, you know, a long time to, to dig out of. But then, of course, we had other issues on the property that were, were cropping up. Like uh, we had, since we had all this vacancy, um, this, this manager wasn't checking on vacant apartments. And so this is, you know, it's South Carolina. It's hot in the summertime. Hot and, and humid. <laughs> hot and humid. And, uh, you know, nobody was checking on the vacant apartments periodically to make sure to see the condition. We had three apartments that were overtaken with black mold oh because the air wow. conditioning had been shut off or something and there was a water leak. And, uh, and then so those apartments had to be completely gutted and taken offline. And we didn't have that since we didn't have enough reserves, we weren't able to rebuild them. And, um, you know, for, very quickly, it took us a long time to like save up the money to do that. Um, I was worried about making an insurance claim because I didn't want my insurance rates to go through the roof. And, sure, sure, sure. Uh, so there was, so there was that. So basically just sort of got into this very deep hole with the property. And then we started, and this is where the kind of like real C-class stuff starts happening. Then we got into a situation where we were having essentially like I, I called it the, you know, the, the water main break of the month. Right. Oh. And, <laughs> and so we were having just one after another, the, the water mains going to the buildings uh, bursting and cause they were, they were old and sure. um, mm -hmm. including, you know, the worst case scenario where they burst under the foundation. And that means you have to, Oh my God. You have yeah. to break through the slab to get to the water main sure. to replace it and then relay the slab foundation. And, you know, it's just like horrible, horrible deal. expense. Absolutely. So every time we felt like we were getting our heads above water, then we would suddenly have an $10,000 expense that Boy. you know mm -hmm. would eat up whatever profit we had and then the final kind of litany of bad news on this property was that we had two major fires within a month on the property, oh my god both likely caused by tenant mm -hmm. uh you know i don't want to say misconduct but you know tenant fires tend to be kitchen fires and both but of these, these were, fires were bedroom fires they, no they were no they were kitchen fires but they okay mm -hmm. they they and they were my suspicion is that somebody just went to work with the stove on and oh, because they both happened around like eight in the morning and um with and with no tenants around so well, mm -hmm. they they um you know but we had we had two major fires within the space of about a month lost nine units uh, that was fortunately all you know insured and covered but now we were 
just oh, yeah. dealing with, with, with that the, issue too. So that was sure. kind of like, I never had to deal with any of these issues on any other property I owned. I dealt with all of them on one property. So in a way it's good, I guess like, you know, we had that one property sort of over there with the property. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but, but I'll tell you, I, I learned so much from that Absolutely. property yes. and dealing with those issues uh, that it's, you know, I completely reevaluated the way I look at everything uh, from, you know, on the one hand from like what kind of property I t I'm going to target to sure. the issue of like adequate reserves to, you know, the issue of, uh, you know, property sure management, not yeah. leaving yeah, property management, also not leaving the property management, like yet being more, uh, digging a little more into what they're doing and, and not trusting them as right. much, you know, just kind of the trust, but verify, like the verify portion has to be, uh, you have to really absolutely on top of absolutely. that. So, it was a great learning. It was a horrible thing to go through, but it was a fantastic learning experience. No, I think it is very valuable, Jonathan, what you're sharing here is because that that very piece of property manager that you said, I mean, it, it kind of snowballs into so many things as you alluded to, whether you know, you're not verifying the tenants right or you're not collecting properly or you're being like, too lenient on your rules or what have you. And, you know, tenants are taking undue advantage of things and stuff like that. And the classic mistake that, oh, you are not even like sort of opening the doors of your vacant unit for, uh, you know, for however month. Uh, I mean, you know, how, how difficult that would that be? But that kind of down, uh, sort of plays into like, you're probably having a wrong person or they just don't know what they're doing or they just mm -hmm. like had never experienced that kind of stuff, you know, just inexperience, you know? So Jonathan, taking a page from all of this, right? Um, how, how are you sort of insulating yourself now? Are, are, are you of the opinion that, hey, it's better to go into a higher grade property or perhaps uh, there's nothing wrong with C-class property. You just have to know the things to do right the next time. What, what, what lessons have, uh, or how are you adapting yourself now? Yeah, I, I would definitely be more focused on the B-class property mm -hmm. going forward. And mm -hmm. uh, just to avoid having to deal with those kind of structural systems issues, uh, you know, that are, just the B-class property is just not as old, right? I and mean, the sure. systems have not been as beat up. Right. And uh, not to say I would never invest in a C-class property again, but it would, I would approach it very differently. You know, I would, I would really want to have much better reserves on the property and invest a lot more upfront in uh, getting after all of the stuff that could go wrong sort of proactively. Mm -hmm. You know, now you've always got a balancing act like, you know, new roofs don't make you any money, right? You're investing, if you invest in a new roof, it doesn't translate into rent because nobody can sure. see it. Right. Uh, but at the same time, you, you have, you have to maintain the property. Yeah, so you're expected uh, to keep all those things. Up, up tight yeah. You have, running. you have to keep right. them running. Right. And you, so uh, you want to, you know, uh, properly, you, you want to go in with your eyes open. Um, but I think that, you know, unless there's some kind of unusual, unusually attractive situation around a C property, like perhaps it's really in a good location and you really can do a, a good value add on it to, mm -hmm. to bring it up to a B. And then, you know, you, the systems are in good enough shape that mm -hmm. you, you know, you can reserve a bit of money to deal with what comes up. I think in that situation, they could be fine. But, but I think also the tenant issues are, are more of a problem because even if you set in my, so my, my view has changed on C tenants as well, because even if you are adequately vetting them coming in, mm -hmm. the C class tenants are the most vulnerable tenants of all, right? They don't, 
have a lot of resources to fall back on. Right. Uh, mm -hmm. If there is a recession, they're the first to lose their jobs. Mm -hmm. um, and they, uh, they just don't have a lot of cushion. Right. And, mm -hmm. and I think that if it comes to, um, you know, if someone has to make a choice between paying their car payment and paying their rent, they're going to pay their car payment because sure. they mm -hmm. need it to get to work. It's more valuable to them. They're right. going to default on the rent first and, uh, and it, they don't have any resources to collect against, right? Mm -hmm. If they, if they miss their rent. So uh, I just feel like particularly in, in an environment in which, uh, you know, people are paying a premium to own, to buy property uh, that, you know, to then kind of set yourself up for, you know, when you're, when you're pricing in now, obviously we're in a different situation right now with COVID and we, sure, we sure. still don't know how that's going to play out, but just looking back to say like January of this year, if people were buying C property and they're pricing in all of the good news of the economy into that deal and paying a premium for it uh, and basically buying like buying based on, on good news that kind of has to continue uh, you're just setting yourself up for disaster when you've got a, a population of basically you're taking on a population that's the most likely to get hurt if the economy sure sure bad. sure sure so I, I would i would want to uh, just being a conservative investor want to stay away from those deals unless i was buying at the bottom of the market and i was buying at a discount and i knew that i could build in a big margin of safety into the deal even given who you know the, the tenants are and their and their their quality uh, you know, as their credit quality, mm -hmm. I shouldn't say that. Not, not their people quality, but their human quality, but their their credit quality. So sure, 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 sure. No, I, and I agree with you that I think they have so much less savings in that C class that, uh, unfortunately, upon a pandemic like COVID, if that hits or you know any dip in recession, their savings are gone, and you know you're pretty much all of your defaults uh, increase, and that's a horrible situation to be in. How, how was your deal structured, Jonathan? There, like, was it uh, you know sort of a 70-30 split or, or describe how, how was the deal structured? Uh, yeah, we, we based our syndication model on private equity. So it was a, a one in 20 split. So 1% asset management fee and a 20% of the upside, you know, subject to a, a preferred return. So we wouldn't participate if, if the preferred return wasn't met, right. but I we see. were it wasn't like, like a lot of people do like a split over the return. So they have an eight, you know, whatever preferred return is and 50, 50 above an eight or whatever the split is. We, we just structured it to be 80, 20 overall so that uh, the investors get the first eight, then we get two. And then, you know, and then, and then if there's more after that, Mm -hmm. then it's all 80 20 to the investors i see now just to complete the loop on uh, on your pra uh, story there of the c class uh, there uh, jonathan um how did that fare out like over the long term did you sell it or uh, what what were so, the issues resolved after year two year well three? we did you know we wound up getting it rebuilt um we did sell it at a substantial profit mm -hmm. uh and that was but frankly that was really because of the way the market moved Mm -hmm. um, I was very happy to exit that property and, sure. um, and, you know, especially happy to exit it at, at a substantial profit. We, we wound mm -hmm. up making really almost basically the entire profit on that property from the sale. Um, and just from cap rate compression. Now, sure. if we had, if the property had ever performed where, you know, I had expected it to return, we would have made even more money mm -hmm. both along the way in terms of, you know, profits, but also just on the, you know, 
the price that we would have gotten given those cap rates at the end of the deal. But nevertheless, that was, I was still very, very happy. And my investor uh, who had completely lost his patience with the deal uh-huh. was, was very happy with the end result. Um, but again, like I, I can't really take credit for that. It wasn't anything we did. Just the market decided that it was going to, you know, start paying five caps for C deals and, yeah, that helped us. So right, right, right. Yeah, I think some of the growing markets sometimes tend to have those uh, definite advantages. Uh, now, Jonathan, uh, turning things a little bit here, um, you have a uh, coaching program by mm-hmm. yourself, right? You've seen a lot of students come and go through your program as well. Uh, give us some uh, sort of foray into um, how how students or like you know young listeners listening out there um, explain them that what what should be the factors they should be looking at or what it takes to be successful? Like what sort of personality, what sort of habits or what different things that, um, you know, uh, you have seen students do on a daily basis that, that propel their success. Well, one of the things that I have learned um, kind of the hard way, because I tried to do everything myself is mm-hmm. that there, no one can do everything themselves. Right. Mm, sure. Mm-hmm. Because there are different, and I'm not even just talking about bandwidth, because I think that one of the good things about this business is that you don't have to work 12 hour days to be successful in real estate. Right. You don't have to kill yourself. You can definitely handle the work involved, uh, especially if you're not doing the property level management yourself. If you're just asset managing it, there's sure. not, it's not, it's not a time consuming business. Uh, business. Um, but, uh, you can't do everything in the sense of, uh, you can't do everything well. And what I mean by that is that there are different personality types that are really needed for different parts of the business. So for raising money, right. That is, you know, typically kind of more of an extroverted kind of, uh, uh, you know, personality that does well in that someone who likes to be talking to investors and likes to be you know, out there doing a lot of networking and things like that. That's the personality type that's needed for uh, that's like for right. money raising. Sure. Mm-hmm. But but for deal finding, you need somebody who's very analytical. Tends to be probably more introverted. They like staring at spreadsheets. Uh, you know, they like digging into the numbers. And those two things are not really. It's very rare right. to find yeah. mm-hmm. those two skill sets in the same person. Sure. Or even if you can, I mean, I can do both, but I don't really enjoy both of them and don't think I'm particularly good. I like, I don't actually, even though I have a big social media presence and stuff, I don't really like networking very much. Like I'm not, uh, that's just, uh, you know, I, I'm, I'm more introverted. I like to kind of be by myself, frankly. Mm-hmm. Um, I, that, it's easy for me to be on social media because I, like I've said before, I, I, I can, it's, I'm okay talking with a thousand people, you know, like sure. on, mm-hmm. from a stage, but I don't, I'm less comfortable talking to like person like one-on-one, right. <laughs> you know? So, um, right. so having a social media platform is great for me, but it doesn't, uh, you know, until I built that, I wasn't very good at the money raising side mm-hmm. of things. Um, but so my, so one really important piece of advice I have for for you, if you're a new investor is to kind of just be honest with yourself, like say, what do I prefer? Like, would I rather be looking at spreadsheets all day and digging into the numbers or to rather be out there talking to people all day sure. and, and trying to make connections. And whichever one you decide is fine, but then you should go find someone else to do the other side of it and, right. and help you 
out. And I think that is, if you look around at, at all of the people who, you know, there's a number of people in the business that I started out with at the same time who grew a lot faster than I did. Mm-hmm. And part of the reason they did is because they did exactly that. They didn't try to do it all on their own. They found partners to complement them and they could each then kind of focus on their specific skill set. So sure. that mm-hmm. is something that I think is not talked about a lot, uh, but it's really, really important. So build yourself a team. You know, there's a, there's a lot of talk about building the team and what the people talk about. It's like, oh, you're a lawyer and your accountant. Before you even get to that stage, build your internal team, which is like you and the other people you're going to work with. Sure, sure. And it mm-hmm. doesn't mean you have to go out and form a company with them, right. but like you should have people that you're going to do some deals with and see how it works. And then if you decide that you like working together, then that's the point at which you could say, okay, let's form a, a partnership now and go into business together. I totally agree with you, Jonathan. And, and I think your, um, uh, the, the group coaching program, the multifamily launchpad that you have is also a great way that to find those like-minded folks, you know, sort of exchange the phone numbers, emails, you know, get on some informal calls and understand, you know, what markets they like, what, what are their strengths? So, you know, as you rightfully pointed, it's all about, you know, that, informal connection, teamwork, and, you know, playing to your strengths, you know. So thank you, Jonathan. Uh, unfortunately, we are out of time, and I appreciate you coming on. Uh, tell us, uh, tell our listeners, Jonathan, how they can get in touch with you, and, uh, you know, tell us more about some new things that are, are probably happening around your desk. Yeah, sure. If you are interested in uh, talking to me about investing, then the best place to go is to my website, uh, just Google Two Bridges Asset Management LLC. Uh, it'll come right up, and there's an investor page where you can fill out a form, and that'll start the process. If you're interested in uh, learning from me about how to do this, and you're interested in Multifamily Launchpad, go to multifamilylaunchpad.org. Uh, there's a free download there, which is the ultimate checklist to doing your first hundred plus multifamily unit deal and getting paid to do it. Um, and that is a like an 11 page long checklist that tells you every single step of the syndication process. If you download that, you'll get on my email list. Uh, I send out emails almost every day talking about multifamily real estate and giving people the opportunity to sign up for multifamily launchpad if they're interested. So those are the two best places to reach me. Awesome. Awesome. Thank you. It's been a pleasure, Jonathan and viewer, uh, li- viewers and listeners of the podcast can also head out to premiumcashflow.com. Um, you know, there also we have a lot of news articles uh, and if you are willing to, uh, you know, get on our mailing list, uh, there is a tab for invest with us. Uh, you can, you know, register yourself we, and we can get on a short call with you and find out what, uh, you know, what are your interests, what are your goals, uh, what you're looking to do. And, uh, you know, we can work with you also in future. So thank you, Jonathan. It's been a pleasure. Uh, thank you, very you know, much for having me. Uh, Thank you. And I look forward to having with you again in future as well. Absolutely. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Premium Cashflow Real Estate Investing Podcast. Please join us at premiumcashflow.com to sign up for weekly updates, research articles, and more. We will see you again for another great interview with an expert guest.